It is a great joy and pleasure to be before you all to bring the Word of God to us. On Sunday, March 27, 2022, actor Will Smith walked on stage and slapped comedian Chris Rock during the live TV broadcast of the 94th Academy Awards. And many of you chuckle because you know exactly what I'm talking about even if you didn't watch the Academy Awards. The reason for this, many believe, is because Chris Rock had made a joke about his wife, Jada, because of her hair, her shaved head. Uh, after doing this, Will smirked, sat down, and then began to shout out different things to Chris. Though Will later apologized to those in attendance and later to Chris, he did not say why he did what he did, even though many speculate as to why he responded this way. Now, there's a principle in Scripture that teaches us that what we do is a result of what we are. This is because in our heart uh, or our actions inevitably will reveal what is in our heart, according to Matthew 12, 34. And James describes this kind of relationship between the heart and our actions as wisdom. The wisdom that one possesses comes from the fundamental beliefs that we hold about God. Either we trust that he is God and we accept what he has revealed about himself and about his creation, or we'll turn to ourselves as our ultimate authority and form our own understanding of reality and we will then live however we see fit. The wisdom that is from above is one that produces in God's people godly conduct, peaceful relationships, and godly qualities as seen in his word. On the other hand, wisdom from below is limited to this world and is influenced by self, producing arrogance and self-centeredness. What we, will, what we believe will influence how we live. What we believe will influence how we live. Now, our passage for today builds on the previous section where James explained, that, uh, explained these two kinds of wisdoms. One of the effects of this kind of worldly wisdom is that it produces disorder and every vile practice, as we saw in James 3.16. Now, many uh, have been shocked at Will Smith's action. But as believers, we can understand why he did what he did. Because the Bible tells us the cause for these actions. It's distorted desires that stem from the heart. While we can expect that from the world, because these practices are worldly, Scripture teaches us If you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Worldliness is sinful, and it ought, 
and we ought to repent of it by humbling ourselves before God. Worldliness is sinful, and we ought to repent of it by humbling ourselves before God. And we have three points this morning, and we will be going through these uh, during our time together. The first one is the reality of worldliness. We will see this in verses 1 through 3. Then we'll look at the rebuke for worldliness in verses 4 and 5. And then the remedy for worldliness in verses 6 through 10. The reality, the rebuke, and the remedy for worldliness. I invite you then to turn with me to James 4, verses 1 through 10. And if you are new to our church and um, you want to open up and follow with us, I invite you to turn to your bulletin. The passage is printed out for you right then and there. You can follow along in the bulletin. Or you can turn to one of the Black Pew Bibles that's uh, underneath the, the chair, your seat. James 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. And so here in our passage this morning, we come to a problem. There was conflict within the local church, within, between members, conflict with others. And we read in our passage that the church wasn't experiencing the peace that James had just told us about in the previous chapter, in, in, in chapter 3, where he says that peace cultivates righteousness, peace within the church, right? They weren't experiencing this. Instead, some in the church were at war with others. We see that in our text there in verse 1, where we read of quarrels and fights. And the word quarrels um, has the meaning of wars, a state of hostility. Think of what's going on uh, right now between Russia and Ukraine, right? And then we have the word fights, which uh, can mean battles, strife among believers, personal strife. 
right? And James addresses their way of treating each other in their local gathering, possibly even outside the church. And the point that he was wanting to make is that this was happening between believers because he says that this is happening among you. So he's not referring to the world. He's addressing those in the church. And then James moves from the problem to the symptom, asking what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, where is this coming from? Where are you guys getting this from? And he asks this question or these questions because our actions are not random acts, but instead they are results of decisions, of beliefs, uh, or decisions that are made based on our beliefs. And that is what drives what we do. So like a skilled doctor, James observes the symptoms, and then he moves to identify the cause by saying, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? The word passions is the word that can be translated pleasures or desires. It's where we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism is the philosophy of life that one was created to live for pleasure. And I'm sure you've come across many people that live this way, that believe this, that one just was created to you know, wait for the weekend so you can go and have fun, so you can plan to live however your heart desires, that the greatest aim in life is to uh, find satisfaction. In the New Testament, passions is used to refer to sinful pleasures or desires for them. And here, James uses the word to describe sinful, self-seeking desire for satisfaction. What he's saying is that those who give themselves to their passions will do whatever it takes to get their own way, even if it comes at the cost of warring or battling or quarreling or having strife with others in the church. Now, it's important to make a note that even though in the life of a Christian, sin has been dethroned as the ruling master of the believer's heart, sin continues to roam around looking to tempt us through our desires. This is what John writes about when he mentions the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's a desire for power, for sex, for pleasure, for material possessions, for money. And James here is describing distorted desires and then he describes the fruit of it he says that you desire or that is you crave but you don't have and so what do you do then you murder you hate the word murder doesn't literally mean that one goes out and kills or murders right but i think he what he has here is the idea that jesus talks about when he says that murder in the heart stems, uh, it comes from the heart, which manifests itself in anger. And this is why we see strife and wars and quarreling and bitterness, because one has sinful cravings and desires. And when one doesn't get them, one murders or one hates in the heart. And then covet 
is to be jealous or to envy what others have. And so James says that one fights to get these things. But you see, when one allows these distorted pleasures, uh, these distorted desires to run loose, it not only leads us to desire wrongly, to crave, to covet, but then it also affects our prayer life. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. When one is focused on selfish pleasures, selfish gain, not thinking about what God wants, you're not going to have the desire to pray about it. You're going to do whatever you do, whatever you need to do to obtain whatever you want. And so you don't pray, James says. And then he says, when you do pray, you pray wrongly. You ask wrongly. You ask not for God's will, but you ask for your own will. Right? Our Lord Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He says that when you go before the Father, you ought to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? But James here is saying that some of these prayers are quite the opposite. It's, Father... Let my will be done, not yours. Let my will be done in the things that I ask on earth. Give me what I want. And this, James says, is wrong. It's sinful. Because we ask not for the glory of God. We ask not to glorify God and to please God, but to please ourselves. And here we find a misplaced desire or cravings. And brothers and sisters, when we allow ourselves to bite the temptation of selfish desires and cravings, you already know this, but it's important to be reminded of this. Misplaced desires and cravings never fully satisfy. They don't. You might get a feeling of being satisfied, but it's like cotton candy. You guys know what cotton candy feels like? Feels like sticky air, right? If you're hungry and you take a bite into it, you feel like you're getting some something to satisfy that hunger, right? But all you got to do is take one or two or three bites, licks, whatever you do with cotton candy, to realize that it leaves you thirsty that there's no substance in it. It satisfies but for a second, but it leaves you wanting and craving something real, something with real substance. And that's what this temptation of misplaced cravings and misplaced desires does to us. It never fully satisfies. So then, um, James not only tells us about the reality of worldliness he then also rebukes worldliness in verses four and five this is where we read you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James rebukes his hearers for their sinful conduct. He calls them adulterous people and adulterous people. Now that's an interesting way of referring to them. Why would he call them an adulterous people? Well, the reason for this we see in our text is because they had become friends of the world. The word friendship is the word philia, which carries the meaning of an affection for or an emotional attachment for something. And James says that the reason that some in the church were adulterous in conflict with others is because they had replaced their affections and devotion to God, and they had placed them here in the things of the world. And the word world here doesn't refer to the things that God created, such as food or pets or other common graces. No, the word world here refers to the value system that is under Satan. It is a self-centered desire for pleasure, a love for a lifestyle that the world has to offer. It is a love and affection for the world's ethics, for its morals, for that which is against God. And the reason it's against God is because the main goal of this philosophy of life is that one is one exists to live for creation rather than for the creator. And the main point of, of what James is getting at here is that some had had an emotional attachment, a deep longing for the world. They had not simply fallen into or stumbled into sin. That's not what's being discussed here. Rather, some had a settled affection. They had an intimate relationship, a determination to enjoy the world and what it has to offer. And James wants us to know that a deep affection for the world is incompatible with our love for God. We cannot love both because we're going to love one more than the other. James says that whoever wishes to be comfortable with their love for the world and living for the world this person makes himself to be an enemy of God. That's huge. To declare oneself an enemy of God, for the creation to look to the creator and say, I want war with you, bring it. It makes no sense, right? I would like for us believers to take some time to analyze our hearts. What does your heart love? Where do your affections lie? And to find that, you can ask some more questions. What do you crave and what do you desire most often? When you wake up in the morning, what, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What do you find yourself daydreaming about when you're at work, when you're driving, when you're at home, when you have free time? Where are your affections? 
Do you long for God? Do you long to obey him and to do his will, even if you fall short? But is this your, your life's aim, to please God, to live for him? Or do you long for the world? Do you long for your will to be done, no matter the cost, even if it means hurting others in the church? Even if it comes at a cost of rejecting God himself? James writes this because what was true back then is still applicable to us today. This form of temptation can creep into the church, into FBC, and it could be among us this morning. And so I encourage you to take some time this afternoon and, and, and reflect on these questions. Take some time to, to, to see where, where, where is your heart. Now, James also tells us that when he rebukes, when he makes a rebuke, he tells us that this heart posture is in conflict with God's word. James tells us in verse 5 that the Bible teaches that the spirit which God has given to dwell in us longs jealously for his people. You know, God in his kindness, when he saves us, he does so many different wonderful things. He justifies us. He declares us just, even though we're guilty. He adopts us into his family, right? He makes us his children. He gives us the privilege of becoming children of God. But then he also gives us himself and his spirit. His spirit dwells within us. And here James tells us that the spirit jealously longs for his people. And the spirit rightly desires the affections of his people because we belong to God. As believers, we are the bride of Christ for whom he died. He gave his, he gave his life for ours that we would live to enjoy him and to find our full satisfaction in him. You see, this is why he created us. Back in the garden where God created everything good, Adam and Eve, they were created to enjoy God in a right relationship with him where he would be their reason for or where they would find their satisfaction and their joy. But sin distorted all of that. And because of that, it is now that we too are tempted to look away from God, to turn away from God and to reject him as the, being the object of our affection. And instead, we, we, we have these distorted desires that set our affections on the things of this world. And because of this, it goes against what the Bible teaches us, that God, rightfully so, he is jealous for our affections. Now, the remedy for this we find in verses 6 through 10, God gives us hope. Because if you find yourself in this situation, as you analyze and you reflect uh, on the questions that we just thought about for a few seconds earlier, in verse 6, we're, giving, we're given hope. We read, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When 
Dr. Oaks was with us and he talked about grace. I think it was just last week. He referred to it as undeserved favor, which is one angle of grace. But Piper, John Piper says that there's another angle to grace. And verses like 2 Corinthians pictures a different kind of grace. And I'm going to read that for us. Um, 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, but um, you can if write it down if you'd like to. But 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace then has another angle. And this angle pictures a grace of God that gives us the power or that influences us to obey as believers. In this sense, the grace of God works in us to change our heart's desires, our heart's dispositions, causing true and lasting change. Change that would lead us to love God and to set our affections on him. God gives us hope. He gives us grace. He gives us grace that is greater than our sin. God gives us the grace that is necessary to overcome the temptations that we oftentimes find ourselves giving ourselves to. And so what, what is the, 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 the right response to the grace that God offers us? Well, in verses 7 through 9, the right response is to repent. Because you see, there's two options. There's two, there, there, we have to make a decision between these two options. We can, one, we can be proud and reject God's offer of grace and say, I don't want to live under you. I want to live under my own rule, my own authority, my own desires, my own passions. Well, the Bible calls that pride, right? Or the other option is to humble ourselves before God. It is to see ourselves rightly in light of who God is. It is to say, God, you are the creator. You are my creator. You have every right to tell me how to live. In your word, you've revealed how I am to live because it is good for me. Because you created the world and you know, you know how this world runs best. And because your desires for me are for good, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to die to myself. And here James says that God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. You see, why would we want to reject this gracious God? If his desires are only for our good and never for our evil, if he desires to do good to us, if he never has the intention to wrong us, if, if he truly is this holy and righteous, gracious, loving, merciful, kind, compassionate, and we can continue going on and on and on. If he is this God, why would we want to reject him? Why would we want to want pride? instead of humility. Well, the right response is repentance. And so James gives us 
the process or he gives us a description of what repentance looks like. First, he says in verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. This is the right response to God's grace. Submission does not mean, okay, fine, I'll obey. I'll start to not lie, not steal, not kill, not covet. Sure, I'll do it. That's not submission. That's not what we should jump to first, at least. Because submission is not about taking on a list of do's and don'ts. If you do this, you're going to end up right back in the same place. Because you're simply trying to do things. Submission means surrendering your will to God. It is to seek God's will for your life and to embrace it, to accept it. And this begins with a change of mind, which leads then to a change of heart, which is then seen in our actions. The person who is genuinely repentant does not remain unmoved by sin. Such a person will give careful thought to one's sins, which will then lead to this repentance. And so James continues, what does submission to God look like? What does submission to God look like? Well, he says, resist the devil. This is a defensive response. Every believer is called to walk daily with the Lord, trusting Him, obeying Him. And as we do this, you can trust that you will come across temptations. And when temptations come your way, Jesus says, or James says, when this happens, resist the devil. Resist temptations. Right? Temptations come from the devil. They don't come from God. And James already told us this earlier in his letter, right? When you find yourself being tempted, don't blame God because God doesn't tempt anyone. And here James is telling us that it comes from the evil one. And so we are to resist, to not give in. But of course, this requires preparation, right? You learn from your sin. You don't just say, okay, God, please forgive me. See you next time that I sin again. It is to stop and to meditate and to think, where did I fall short? How is it that this sin um, got the best of me? What do I need to do to prepare so that I can resist it the next time it comes around? And there's a promise here that if we obey God, the devil will flee. And it is not because of how strong we are. It's not because of how obedient we are. It's because God promises that if we submit to him and we resist, Satan will flee. Then James says that we are to turn to God in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We are to turn our affections towards God. This is what leads to obedience. We turn our affections to God by meditating on who he is and what he's done for us. And we do that by meditating on the gospel. You see, the gospel, it's been said before, and we've shared it here many times before, is not just something that gets you into the kingdom and then you move on to something much bigger and better. No. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, the good news, 
It's not only what gets us into the kingdom, but it's what gets us to heaven. So we meditate on the gospel every day, not only when we fall short, but on our best days as well, because the gospel is the fuel for our joy. The gospel is the fuel for our obedience. The gospel is the fuel for our submission to God to resist the devil. If turning to the world leads to resisting God, then turning to God leads us to surrender to his will. And we turn to God as God has laid out for us in his word. And God is so good that he has given us many ways to draw near to him. One of which is drawing near to him as a church body with the local church on Sunday morning. God is among his people today. He is with us. He dwells within us. And he is speaking through us by his word. And so we draw near to God to hear his word so that we would learn what pleases him, what's good for us, so that we can then submit to him. But then we also enjoy the means of grace that he provides through different spiritual disciplines, uh, reading the scripture, fellowship, worshiping, and we can go on and on. But we are called to turn from the world and turn to God. And the promise here is that God will draw near to you. He will. You don't have to hope. You don't have to maybe pray, please, I hope that it's true that you will meet me there. No, God says that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And I think one of the greatest pictures of this we find in Luke 15 in, in the parable of the, of the prodigal son. You see, there we find a parable, a story of a son who had offended his father by making a request that was equivalent to, I wish you were dead, because he asked for his inheritance. And an inheritance is only received once a loved one passes away, right? And so the prodigal son, in essence, says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance because I want to go do whatever I want. And so he asks for his possession, and then he goes on and he squanders it until he comes to his senses, which then leads him to reflect on his sin and then causes him to turn back. And then we're told uh, in Luke 15, that while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and the father felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced his son and kissed him, something that you wouldn't do in this culture. You see, in this culture of, of fathers, those in authority wore long robes, garments, and he would have had to tie it around his leg and then run to his son. That, that, that would have been something that was countercultural because the son should have been the one running to him. But here in, in, in the parable, we find that the father is the one that runs to the son. And so the father not only runs to him, sees him, has compassion, but then he embraces his son and he kisses him. 
And then the son tries to give his speech. Father, you know, I'll, I'll pay it back. You don't even have to take me back as a son. I'll be one of your servants. And the father doesn't even let him finish. The father graces him with new clothes and new ring and a celebration for his return. And here we find the very heart of God towards those who repent and turn to him. So you see, if you find yourself falling into this kind of temptation, draw near to God, turn to him, and he will draw near to you. And then James says, continuing in verse 8, turn from sin. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Genuine repentance leads to a transformed heart, transformed actions. When James refers to cleansing of hands and purifying of hearts, he's referring to external actions, but also to internal attitudes and affections. James says to put away sinfulness, to put away sinful desires. We stop doing these things, the things that displease God, and we begin to do the things that please God. Not because we want to earn right standing with him, because we want to please our God who loves us, our God who is gracious. And then he says that we are to acknowledge sin and to respond appropriately in verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The one who is genuinely repentant is not unmoved by his sin. That person will not only take his sin, uh, th that person will not take his sin lightly because genuine repentance will lead a, sin, uh, a, person, uh, a believer who sins to own their sin and to see it as an offense to God. When we understand who it is that we're sinning against, it produces godly sorrow, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And we find a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 51. I encourage you to read that as well. And this is because genuine repentance is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of just saying, I'm sorry. It goes deeper than that. This is what we see in the description and call to be wretched and mourn and weep. And you see, Jesus pronounces a blessing on this kind of repentance over those who mourn, mourn over their sin. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, those who allow themselves to feel the weight of their sin, it's offense to our holy God, and seek forgiveness, are promised the comfort of God, who does not turn away when one with a broken heart and contrite spirit turns to him. Genuine repentance leads to godly grief. It is the godly grief that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians that produces repentance that leads to salvation. So at the heart of genuine repentance then is godly sorrow. It's more than an intellectual response. It's more than just saying, God, I'm sorry that I offended my brother or my sister. It's more than just saying that. It's more deeper than that. 
It's something that we must stop, make time for, and meditate on in our heart. And the promise is that God will accept us. Notice that the right response that we've looked that we've looked at is not to take a legalistic approach. Instead, it is to turn from our sinful ways and to devote ourselves, our affections, our love to God. The call to humble ourselves before the Lord is a call to submit to God. This requires humility, which causes one to see oneself rightly. After mourning for sin, God promises to raise us up from the dust and to restore us to himself. He accepts us and forgives us of our sin and cleanses us from unrighteousness as his children. And in this sense, he exalts us. Now, up until this point, how do we know that all of this is true? How can we have confidence or assurance that this will work, that God will draw near, that God will give us grace, that God will forgive us and exalt us? Well, brothers and sisters, the reason that we know that this is true is the very reason that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, He left His throne, and He came into the world to fulfill the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and He loved His neighbor as Himself. And He did that for every time that we have failed to do that, he obeyed perfectly and fully. And then not only did he do that, but then he willingly went to the cross to pay for the punishment that we deserve for misplacing our affections from God to the things of this world. Jesus took the wrath of God so that we would not have to endure his wrath. Because none of us would be able to make it out alive. Jesus is the greater grace that God gives to his people if we repent and turn to him. And we know that this is all true because he is risen. He's not in the tomb. He is alive. What was written about him in the Old Testament by the prophets, what he said about himself has been fulfilled. Jesus is the resurrected Savior who sits at the throne at the right hand of God, who calls us to turn from sin and to turn to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, if you do find yourself with wandering affections and wandering cravings and desires, turn to God, repent of your sin, draw near to Him, And he will draw near to you. But there's also hope, maybe for hurting Christians. Maybe someone's been hurt by others in the church who have been waged against with war. God has good news for you too. And that is that the same grace that God offers to those who drift away, committing treason in their heart, God gives you the same grace today and he calls you to respond 
to him in humility as well by trusting him, by looking to Christ, who left us an example to follow when facing hostility. You see, First Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so there is hope for the offender and there is hope for the offended. And it is found in the grace of God. Now, if you're visiting us this morning and you know yourself not to be a believer, we're grateful that you're here with us this morning. We're glad that you could sit with us and hear God's word preached. But I want to ask you now, where do you find your love? What do you long for? If you follow through with the exercise or with the reflection, you will find that it is not God. It is a love of self. And God offers you this same grace today. He offers you free and full forgiveness for every time that you have not lived for him, for every time that you have offended him. God gives you grace in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he calls you not to lift yourself up by your bootstraps or to try harder. He offers you true heart change, which he has promised and makes available to you by faith in his son, Jesus. And so God calls you to lay down your will, turn from yourself and turn to him, that you too would be exalted as a child of God. And if you have any more questions about this, please feel free to ask myself or Jason or any Christian that's here, and we would love to tell you more about this great gift of God's grace. So to recap, worldliness is sinful and ought to be repented of. And we do that by humbling ourselves before God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to confess that each one of us, Lord, has hearts that we have hearts that have drifted away. Rather than loving you, we have given our affections to the things of this world, to the desires of the world, to the trends of this world, to the pleasures that this world has to offer, rather than setting our heart's desire on you, the one who can truly satisfy. Father, we thank you that you invite us to confess our sin to you, and that when we do confess, you cleanse us, you forgive us of our sin, and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you that you are patient and that you do not treat us as we deserve. And instead, you, treat, you give us favor that we don't deserve. Thank you for your son, Jesus, because it is because of him that we can be made right with you, and we have been made right with you through faith in him. Father, would you please conquer the desires of our heart wherever we are even, um, where we are unaware that our hearts have drifted. Please, please. 
Make us aware. Help us to see where we are being unfaithful, Lord, and, and cause us to, to love you and to turn from our sin and to love you. We, praise, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.